0: let me introduce you to the most important players in today's event i'm a conservative and a proud kentuckian mr president you will not fill the supreme court vacancy it's about issues we worry about every single night this is one of the most awesome scenes that you can find in politics in this country
1: all right welcome in to today's episode of the pegasus podcast we're going to do a little bit of a different episode today usually we're sort of on the Timely news stories or things going on here in Louisville and Kentucky. But there was a story that sort of captivated, I want to say, the United States media. But uh, certainly the the United States right was very interested in this story uh, out of Italy this week. Um, the brothers of Italy have now taken the controlling uh, – are now the controlling party in Italy – And thus making this woman, who will be the first female prime minister uh, in Italy's history, which, you know, one for the girls there. But, uh, of course, that has been all cast aside because this woman, uh, I apologize if I butcher her name, Giorgio Maloney. I was going to do that in Italian accent, but again, I don't want to mess it up. Uh, Has been deemed uh, the sort of poster child in many ways of this new rising far right fascism taking hold in both Europe and the United States. Um she was immediately sort of deemed this this neo fascist and I I mean literally compared to Mussolini, right? Like that's where some of the comparisons went.
0: Um there's that scene in um what's the new Quentin Tarantino movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Inception. I don't know. uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like the internet meme of Leonardo DiCaprio uh, winning television.
1: Once upon a time in Hollywood.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that meme, and it's like as soon as she took the stage, the media was like fascist. That's yeah, Mussolini.
1: Yeah, reincarnated. Yeah. And uh, and so along with that, a speech actually from 2019 of hers um went viral. This week uh, in which she was speaking At the World Congress of Families Gathering um, So a clip The the whole speech went kind of viral but there was a specific Clip from the speech um, That went viral That saw praise from everybody From Ted Cruz to Your sort of like average Republican voter It went very viral To the point where I actually think at this point As we're recording YouTube has taken that video down Which again The irony of controlling the internet while claiming somebody else <laughs> is a fascist is just remarkable. But we'll, we'll, we will get to all that. So all of that has, has been going on this week, Josh, you sent me the video and there was parts of it that, that you enjoyed. I, this week have, have read a lot about her, about her party, uh, have, have read and listened the speech. So the speech is in Italian. So of course I could listen to it, but it would mean nothing to me. <clears throat> um, I could feel the emotion of it, uh, but has led to a lot of interesting questions, both in my head and I think for conservatives, uh, the the larger right in general, and so in there I'm sort of looping in the populist right, the truly kind of uh, libertarian, classic liberal right coalition of, of America, and there's been a lot of interesting reactions. <laughs> but I, I, I want to kind of start with when you first saw the video, Josh, and I imagine you saw some of the reactions of the left kind of freaking out of her daring to say like, "Hey, families are good," <laughs> and <laughs> you know the, the, these sorts of things. Uh, you know, the, this in some way kind of like embrace, embrace of individualism. Uh, what were your kind of initial thoughts when you first saw it? What What did you like about it? And and your thoughts on the reaction to it? Before we get to maybe some of the criticisms of it.
0: Yeah. So I saw the video before I saw any of the like weeping and gnashing of teeth about the video. Yeah. Right. Um, so it wasn't like I saw this article that was like, here's this Italian fascist look at her kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like, I just saw the video. Um, somebody sent it to me and they sent it to me because she ends the speech with the GK Chesterton quote. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of folks on our side, especially the sort of more traditionalist, right. Who you know like Chesterton a lot, um, like his work a lot, and so I watched the video, and I found it remarkably inoffensive, right? Like I, there was nothing in it that I found particularly offensive. And what is important to understand in the context of that speech and of her sort of rise is like the unique problems facing Italy, right? Yeah, um, Italy for every 440,000 Italians born every year, twice as many have died. So it's how, like Italy has a uniquely aging and uniquely decreasing population. Italy also has a large number of native-born Italians emigrating out of the country, uh, You know, uh, upwards of more than 100,000 uh, a year sort of emigrating out of the country kind of thing. And so from a population standpoint, there's a lot of things that are unstable there, Uh, that are uh, decreasing there. And that's all pre-COVID. And as the listeners may remember, and I'm I'm sure you remember, Italy was sort of ground zero for uh, early COVID deaths and things like that. And there's a number of reasons for that, um, in part because of its aging population. And so Italy has some very serious and very unique problems. And they're problems that are not going to be fixed by the economic status quo and i think that is what um prime minister maloney has really capitalized on some which is that like um lower taxes and re- less regulation aren't going to fix this right like yeah. i'm a big lower taxes less regulation guy yeah. i'm for it like i am not one of these people who is sort of like throwing out the economic model in favor of um, sort of a, a more state-controlled economic model, but like also this social conservatism kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What I think is at the core of her rise, of her belief system and of the, the way that Italians uh, sort of flocks to her party, is that like this era of economic man being the only thing that matters, consumption being all that matters, consumption being prosperity, consumption being a life well-lived, um has always been a lie, um, was always insufficient. And Italy in particular, where the family and particular particularly uh Catholicism, so it's not just religion, but obviously like um the uh, the Vatican is in Italy and so Italy's a very Catholic country. So Catholicism in particular um are, are core tenets of life that Um, the sort of economic only model right off as, as unimportant, right? Family, community, religion, these kinds of things are written off as unimportant. And so I think it's a, it's a pushback on that. And if, if you've read the right, uh, the sort of intellectual right over the last couple of years, you can see some of this coming and it takes various forms, right? Like Christopher Caldwell's age of entitlement and Patrick Deneen's why liberalism failed. Uh, are one form. And then you have like Adrian Vermeule's very Catholic integrationist uh, work that has come out recently. And so it's taking sort of various forms. And what I think is at the core of it is a pushback on the assumption of that if economic needs are met, then everything is sufficient. And um, I think that true conservatism has long recognized that you have to meet people's economic needs But you have to meet the needs of the soul as well. And I don't necessarily mean the soul here in a religious context, but family, community, these kinds of things are not the natural byproducts of economic prosperity. And in some cases, there is actually some tension between economic prosperity and those things.
1: Yeah, I want to kind of start where you started. So I had seen the pushback when you sent me this video, and I think I responded something sort of jokingly like, uh, too bad she's like the worst fascist ever. Uh, because I had only seen just sort of murmurs about it, I think one of the things that is sort of conflated both with this speech and then her party and her actual sort of positions is that that clip, and I'm gonna I want to read some of it here in a second, but that clip to me is particularly unoffensive. What I what I think is more offensive is this larger movement towards an embrace of using the government to meet these goals in a sort of authoritarian way, right? Like the, the it's it, and again this is kind of like the divide between uh like the libertarian right and the conservative right is that like libertarians would have would be like none of this should should happen. Of course the conservative right has a different position on the the role of government. But what, what concerns me with the larger speech and the positions of the party is it's not to me it's this sort of like collective authoritarianism light in a way and we've seen the right creeping towards this and i don't know that fascism is the right word for it i i have typically said like populism uh, but one of the things about the speech that stuck out to me is is she doesn't necessarily criticize, like, the government's role in all of this. It's Mm-mm. sort of this, like, arbitrary, bad, you know, like, they, you know, it's the, like this boogeyman. They want you to just be Citizen X. They just yeah. want you to be Gender X. And I have concerns with some of those, those like, uh, more forced cultural movements, and especially when they become... Again, to me, like uh, this sort of like fascist like, like teaching students things around CRT to me is sort of like fascist light because it's the government imposing these views on somebody. And so I, I have a concern with that. but as myself is more of a sort of libertarian, I have a concern with all of that, no matter the intentions. Again, sort of like reading the the meat of her speech there, like I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I also think I understand, like you just laid out, Josh, the the major, major, major concerns of the right and the sort of intellectual right, but also like right wing voters who see this movement. To strip you of your identity, to demonize the family structure, to uh, take away parental rights on a larger scale, whether it be in schools or in decision making, you know, in healthcare decisions, these sorts of things. Even if those problems aren't as big as the media makes them out to be, even if they aren't as widespread as your Twitter feed would lead you to believe, right? Like, if you were on Twitter right now, you would think every student in America is doing is at drag shows. You know, every single day yeah. of the year, right? Like, uh, there there is this sort of like inflation of of these problems, uh, but I I I don't think it's particularly offensive. The parts of her speech that are harping on these problems. My concern, more largely, is in how they this side sort of aims to fix these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, this is obviously a very anti-immigration party. Yeah. And this party is uh, anti-LGBT. At least anti-gay marriage. I don't know what their views, largely on the LGBT movement, are. Well, but
0: the the thing that you have to keep in mind, as it relates to the immigrant, and and look, they can certainly take this too far. But like Italy has been ground zero in Europe of migrants fleeing Arab countries um, that are conflict-ridden and those kinds of things. Yeah. And Italy really has sort of been the port of entry for a lot of those those migrants. Well, I mean, and this so- is.
1: To to I'm like going backwards for us to go for, like Brexit is very much a precursor to Donald Trump, right? Like that sort of rise of that like national identity, which I'm again I understand the things I'm saying sound like Stalin, like like very sort of fascist, but like that sort of rise of like that populist national identity right wing sentiment kind of starts with brexit trump grows it and now it's becoming more right like we have senate candidates that embrace these ideas more, and so i think again i understand why italy along with issues around parenting and gender and consumption and the market like i get it my concern is the actions of these politicians and their use of force to get what they want
0: I think it is somewhat of a mistake to lump all of those things together as being like linear that way. They are all more populist in the orientation and they are all happening at similar times. And I think there are things that contribute to them. But one of the things about uh, this and her party is unlike some of the other sort of populist right candidates that have emerged in Europe, uh, they are not pro Putin. Like they have been yeah. supportive of Ukraine, uh, since the Russian invasion and those kinds of things. And so like that puts them in contrast with, um, like Victor Orban in Hungary. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, there are certainly some commonalities, the, the populism, the nationalism, some of the anti-immigration sentiments, some of the, um, Skepticism, if you will, of the economic status quo, and I think—and look that we could flash forward five years, and that I'm totally wrong about this. But I think that somebody clipped that, that. The, yeah. That I think that that is the they that she is referring to. Not that there's a specific they, right? Not that there is like a global ruling or elite. Or
1: in, in—in to go back to sort of like world, War, like it's not necessarily the Jews, right? Like that Correct. to me yeah. is clearly defined. Like when it's us versus them, our national identity yeah. versus their either religious yeah. identity or national. Like that to yeah. me is very much like a hallmark of fascism. Yeah, uh, and uh like in sort of like socialism and like us versus them, the sort of like yeah. it's, it's in
0: But I think I think her they is like the economic status quo. Yeah. That it's not a particular group of people. Uh, but that it is like, again, the assumption that the economic man is, is the only man. Yeah. Right. And again, we can flash forward five years and she's got internment camps with a specific group of people. It is, and it's like, yeah. wow, I was really wrong about yeah. that. But, but I think it was the that TikTokers that is what she's talking about because I think that her belief system is more in line with like the Christopher Caldwell's and the Patrick Deneens of the world yeah. who, who look at the status quo, who look at, and, and this is going to be something that libertarians should balk at, right? Because it is in some ways a rejection of their ideology, that it's a rejection of enlightenment liberalism as sufficient. Um, in some cases, it's a, it's a complete rejection. Um, but that, what has, what has separated the right historically since Buckley and National Review and sort of movement conservatism was this idea of fusionism between economic libertarians and traditionalists on a myriad of social issues and things like that. And what I think you see from some of these right-wing populist types, some of them who are rooted in conservatism and some of whom are not, some of whom are just sort of truly right-wing populists, is that they view the one side of that, the economic equation, as having won out continuously over the last 40, 50 years to the detriment of some people group overall, right? And there's some of that that I am sympathetic to. Again, I don't think that you ought to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think the market system works and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, we we regularly try to push policies in various ways um, on, on this. Like, so if you think about like a family policy, right? Like yeah. there, there are child tax credits, there are child care tax credits, there are all those kinds of things that exist already. And so you certainly could go, you could have a government conceive of a family policy that I think goes far too far. Like a China's one child policy historically is a perfect example of this, right? That is the government that's for sterilization and things like that. But the idea that the government is going to be involved in family policy is not a new concept. Now, it may take new forms, but it it really is not a new concept. And that may be offensive for the most small government libertarians among us. But I I really don't think that it is, broadly speaking, offensive policy.
1: Yeah. And this is, again, like this is where I think there's this kind of interesting thing happening with – the sort of right and conservatism more more generally speaking right because I, what you just said Josh I think there's a lot of even libertarians who are are becoming more open to those sort of pro like I think a school choice is the perfect example of this right like using the tools of government to fix a system a government system that is not working that has become anti-family has become anti-student all those sorts of things right like i again like don't think that those are particularly radical ideas and i want to read from her speech here just the the beginning of it or the beginning of this this block here where she says why is the family an enemy why is the family so frightening there's a singer single answer to all these questions because it defines us it because it because it is our identity Because everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like us to no longer have an identity and to simply be perfect consumer slaves. And so they attack national identity, they attack religious identity, they attack gender identity, and they attack family identity. I can't define myself as Italian, Christian, women, mother. No, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number. Again, that to me is like we have have lost... So, I mean, the we talked about this not that long ago on the podcast with uh, blanking on his name. I apologize. Uh, but about families and the breakdown of families. Brad Wilcox. Brad Wilcox. Thank you. About the breakdown of families and how so many of these, especially kind of progressive societies, and I don't mean that in the, the lefty progressive, I mean like societies that are successful, not failed States, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Marriage was the backbone and being a parent and being involved in your child's life and education and uh, the ability to, to guide them on decisions around, you know, important decisions around sex and gender and life and all, like all those sorts of things. The, it, it worries me the attacks on those sorts of things, I, my concern is that th- there's this kind of growing thread where we must use and and the right. There's those on the right who have said this specifically. We must use the tactics of the left to beat the left, right? Like we must right. use the system that they have used against us against them. And and I felt like for so long the right has always said like, no, we're going to take the high road. This is like this is what so many on the right. Appreciated about like Senator McConnell is that the institution mattered more. You can yep. make policy, or you can make a point, right? Like the institution, the foundations of democracy mattered more than the moment. Yeah, and I and I worry that we're becoming too obsessed with the moment on the right, and not and we're and we're leaving the in, the institutions behind. We're leaving the foundations of the party behind, or the the sort of right center right movement behind in favor of in in these kind of like you know more whims of we're like they're ready to throw the cooling saucer of the senate out the window as well too right
0: yeah and i think some of that stuff is really problematic yeah. and it's why it's why my response to most of these kinds of things is like well tell me what you think right yeah. because i was one of these people who fell for this trap when i was in college right, right. Um, I was in college in 2010 at the height of the Tea Party, and there were all these people saying, like, we need the Senate and the House, and we need the Republican Party to be more conservative. And I was like, hell yeah. We need it to be more conservative. <laughs> hell yeah, brother. But the mistake I made then, as I sort of look back on it now, is that, like, I never said, what do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, because like what my version of conservatism was or what I thought neat meant the party needed to be more conservative was not necessarily what the person standing next to me or in front of me or behind me meant by that. Right. And so I think the great value of conservatism is how William F. Buckley defined conservatism, which was standing athwart history, yelling stuff. Yeah. And that gets taken out of context all the time by opponents of conservatism to make all these points. But what Buckley means there is that the conservative seeks to conserve what is good about the society that came before him, because it's the result of the collective wisdom of the generations that came before him. And when we're going to change things, we ought to do so slowly and methodically and not radically, not abruptly. The second piece of that though is that we have to look back at the changes that made and then evaluate whether those changes are positive. And a lot of the changes that have been made in American society have been really positive, right? Um, The right was wrong about civil rights, you know, like um, the, even Goldwater, who was a direct participant in the civil rights uh, efforts in Arizona, but ultimately opposed the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and things like that because of constitutional concerns, I think it, it is not particularly controversial, although there are some people on the right who would still disagree with me on this, to say that Goldwater was wrong about that. And I love Goldwater. I think he's a super important figure, but I think the right was wrong about civil rights. There are other things, though, as it relates to to various things that I think we ought to reevaluate and say, like, did we go too far? Did we go too fast? Are there things we have to, to look back on and and go back on? Right. And I think there are some things as it relates to policy around family in particular in this country and others that we have provided the wrong incentives for family formation and that if. Fam, that family is a better bedrock of society than the individual is. And that's something that would really upset libertarians, right? I don't think the individual is the bedrock of civil society. I think the family is, um, individuals are critically important. Individuals have right, but the bedrock of civil society is the family. Um, and that if you remove that, then you remove community and a whole lot of other things that, that fall away from that. Right. Um, and that would be, again, very controversial to a libertarian, but I'm not a libertarian. I'm not particularly concerned with what the most libertarian position on something is, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, I think that you're seeing a lot of this come out of the right having to deal with these questions and deal with it in an era in which it is so easy to uh, be fractured and factionalized, right? Like yeah. move, what made movement conservatism work was two things. One, you had a central repository of ideas in National Review, and you had a, a big baddie in the Soviet Union, right? Like we all had to be united against the Soviet Union, and you had Buckley and the editors at National Review deciding what was and what was not sufficiently conservative. The Birchers, you're gone. Uh, Ayn Rand, you're gone. The uh, Catholic Integralists, you're gone, right? Um, and so in the era of social media and all these kinds of things, there's no one doing that. And there's not a, an easy big baddie, right? Like wokeism is an abstract idea. It's not a, an opponent that way. Right. And so that allows these sort of groups to be very insular to play on each other's worst impulses and to, to pop up every once in a while. And then sort of the larger, the, the, the society at large, but especially sort of the right at large gets to say like, is that what we want to do or not? And I, in some ways, the reason that um, uh, Prime Minister-elect, I guess, Maloney was successful, whereas, like, Penn has yet to be successful in France, yeah. is that they're not the same person. They, they both have those sort of, like, nationalistic populist impulses that are present on the right right now. But Maloney's seems to be more rooted in traditionalist ideas and the family and some of these things, as opposed to Le Pen's, which tend to I think be a little bit more uh, broadly populist in their orientation. And so you're seeing the right sort of wrestle with this in Europe and you're seeing it happen in the United States too. Like we, we went through a period where the right was sort of very libertarian on everything from economic policy to trade, to immigration, to, um, uh, to gay marriage and things like that. Then you see sort of a populist period. You saw a very hawkish period. And I think that's because post sort of like gay rich revolution in the mid 1990s, the, the right began to say like, okay, with the fall of the Soviet union, I can say that my belief system is more correct than your belief system on the right institutions were erected around those various belief systems and um no one has been able to come along you know like buckley at an intellectual level or or reagan at a political level and say this is what we believe in and here's how what you believe fits into this here's how what you believe fits into this and so i think that that is a big part of what's going on in europe and in the the united states right now
1: yeah i also think one of the things and i don't know how you would measure this but i've i've felt for the last six or seven years let's say six or eight years that a significant portion of what the right has done has been and the left would crucify you for saying this but a reaction to the left going farther quote left too right like this is part of the problem. I mean, we could do a whole—we'd have to get Glenn Beck in here and his chalkboard, do a whole thing on the, the problems <laughs> with the left-right spectrum. Um, and, I, and I listened to Jonah Goldberg talk about this, too, the idea that, like, fascism is on one side and socialism or communism and Marxism is on the other side. Like, no, I mean, first of all, fascism is sort of b- born out of socialism, right? And, like, they're very much this kind of, like, authoritarian uh, approach to governing one just happens to embrace typically the ideas of the right, this sort of like national identity, religious identity. uh, Whereas the left is this like worker pro worker type thing. But in the end, it just ends up becoming like us versus them. It's, it's all these ever devolve into. But one of the things that has always sort of worried me about the rights, either policy reactions or uh, political reactions is that, in some ways, they are – look, the the rise of Trump is very much tied to the fact that politically the left ignored millions of people who lost their jobs post-recession, right? Like right. that's uh, that's nearly undeniable. Yeah. The people who been left behind and Trump spoke to them somehow from his golden toilet, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I, so I, I don't deny that. But I've always – I've felt for the last sort of six or eight years that a significant portion of the right's policy positions – have been a reaction to the left going farther left which is is mm-hmm. undeniable okay yeah 2008 Barack Obama does not have a place in 2022's Democrat party okay that's just that the like
0: yeah I mean he definitely has a place but he he probably is not the ideological forebear or the the like the ideological standard bearer of the left yeah. right which is what he was seen as in 2008 it was yes. the rise of the democrat he is not i mean he probably would not like if he were in the house he probably would not be a squad member he'd be a member (laughs) of like the progressive caucus or whatever but he would not be a squad member yeah and certainly
1: president obama like other politicians move with the part like the parties move different ways back and forth all the time like you just said but one of the things about the right is i felt like it's been it's a it's a large reaction to the left go going farther left where historically the left did that but the right stayed where it was and it was like, no, this is what we believe in, and so I think part of that is a move towards populism because it's worked. We've yeah. we won a bunch of state houses in the Trump years. <laughs> we won a bunch of governorships. I say we like that them saying that to themselves. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't help them win those races, nor was <laughs> I. Uh, but uh, a reaction to that that being successful, but then also these major uh uh you know global issues like again yeah. th- things around trade and immigration i mean immigration being a huge huge part of uh a lot of these populist movements um but i i just don't know if that makes you a fascist like i don't know that wanting to have a secure border or being in favor of brexit or God willing, wanting to build a dang wall down on the the southern border makes you a fascist. Or if it makes you any more of a fascist than with the stroke of a pen, deleting whatever or whatever you want to call it, removing millions of dollars of debt from a select class of people. Like I don't know how either one of those makes you more or less a fascist other than the fact that you have an R or D or you know or likewise i don't know what giorgio Milani has or how it works in italy if they do it before or after but and so no, that no. Is, and so i think the rights for the right to look at the left and every single time they call them a fascist to be like that's not true but we got to be worse because look at what they're doing that concerns me but i also get the hesitation or you know at the very least sort of like frustration with every single time somebody comes to power and says something like, hey, the family's important, and the left goes, you're a fascist. For the right to say, you know what? Screw you. That's exactly what we're going to embrace, no matter what. Th- that, to me, is a very slippery slope, and and I think can, can risk, again, that sort of moment over the long game, to, to steal another McConnell quote
0: yeah i i think there's a number of things to unpack there the first is that look the way that the postmoderns have been most successful is that language just doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> yeah, right like yeah. if you don't like it it's whatever the worst thing you can think of is and so on the left the worst thing that they can conceive of is uh, a fascist or a racist or a homophobic or a misogynist or those kinds of things and so all the things that they don't like are those things on the right, the same thing is true, like it's socialist, like any tax increase is socialism, right? Uh, the well, like theft, groomer, but yeah. the the groomer stuff, yeah, right? Like yes. yeah. um, all Perfect of that example. is, that's a, that is hyperbole in response to hyperbole from the yeah. left, right? Like the reason that that stuff developed was to basically say like, I'm going to call you the worst thing I can think to call you, right? Um, the, the the gun control debate right like very few democrats are particularly interested in mass gun confiscations right but anytime there is a proposed gun control bill that is the response from certain folks on the right right and it's it's all hyperbole around like getting folks back into their corners as quickly as possible so that we can go fight the other team and i don't know that that's any. Worse or different than it has been historically, but it definitely feels that way in the era of social media, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I think that that is what's at the, the the core of a lot of that. It's just this like everybody retreat to your corners and get ready to fight, and these are our rallying cries. Um, what makes it a little bit different in instances like this is the way that traditional media outlets just feed into it, yeah. right? Yeah. You can look at Fox News or the Daily Wire or, um, you know, uh, Breitbart or some other right-wing news outlet. say That's a right-wing news outlet. And so, like, of course, right? But when, like, the Washington Post, which is a legacy paper in this country and, you know, should be a reasonably unbiased media source, is like, here's – here I read this thing the other day, the New York Times – Obviously, you know, like most important paper in the country wrote an article about the incoming Italian prime minister and used the term fascism like 28 times or something like that in the piece. And it wasn't an opinion piece. I don't believe, you know, like it was a news story. That kind of stuff, I think, is remarkably detrimental to public discourse and the exchange of ideas, because, again, if it's Breitbart or Mother Jones or the Daily Beast Or like one of these you know, Or the Daily Wire Like these places that are ideological In their orientation, it's one thing But I do think that the way the Traditional media have elevated Some of these attacks on one another Is, is bad for democracy
1: Yeah, I feel like I've attacked the right A lot on this episode So I'll, I'll sort of give you one here at the end I, I want to be very clear about this the, the This sort of language Deterioration in which both language does does not matter, but also these sort of tricks they play. Like this is the the like Ibram X Kendi,ification of our language, where you're either racist or you're anti-racist. Right. That's it. You're either with us or you're against us. And let me be very clear: that is a fascist way to look at <laughs> our society. Okay. So Ibram X Kendi, is as much a fascist. And the way he views American society, and generally through the lens of race, but class and those sorts of things, is as much a fascist, both in his policy positions, obviously. I mean, my goodness, this guy wants to create a government, wants to create like a third Congress to of anti-racism. But the language positions of of the left has been, I believe, wholly created by the left, too. this sort of fascist way of thinking you're either with us or you're against us. The right uses it sometimes like the right sort of plays the, these tricks sometimes too. But I think the left has both created this, their allies have embraced it and have made it essentially sort of a mandatory way of viewing language. And I think that is remarkably dangerous and incredibly fascist. Okay. Like the, the, the idea that you are either racist or anti racist is a ridiculous way to view the world. And I mean it in, in, in Kendi's sense. Like, obviously, everybody should be against racism. <laughs> I'm saying, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that the, the, there's sort of nuances here. But I, I mean, in the, the identifying factors and the way you view language and the society and the prism in which you view certain things, whether it be race, class, name a thing gender that is fascist and the left has been the main contributors of creating this these sort of languages creating the the battles around it right everything is now equity everything is anti-racism they have they have manipulated language in their favor to divide you know and it's in it at the root of all of this it's always power right like these people aren't <clears> thus <throat> then sort of have this like libertarian uh, dream of how the united states then operates right it's not like oh you're an anti-racist now we completely leave you alone <laughs> you know what i mean like it's <clears throat> the, like and that is an entire manifestation of the left right yeah. like the right has has its issues with language and and uh the way they view the world at times too but those sort of things you're talking about like the us versus them mentality and the the, the problems that creates and leads to the rises of these sorts of people. If you're on yeah. the left, right? Like if you're on the left looking at why these people are becoming popular, it's yeah. because you're the way you have sort of structured society through media and culture and literature and education, you're creating these people. Like that's your fault. If you think they're awful and the in- inability for the left to recognize that is, well, I mean, they eat that the, they, they eat their own all the time. Right. You know, right, so you yeah. don't, silence is violence it's a, you know it's this us versus them mentality and and thus it's this always kind of moving uh target and gosh it, it just it eats us and them alive
0: yeah i think that's absolutely true
1: yeah so <laughs> last thing i wanted to do too so we, we just had this long conversation about sort of like what is fascism what's the future of conservatism i thought the funniest thing when i was doing. And people can harp on me for this, but I read about the uh, the um, brothers of Italy, which is the the political group that first of all, way cooler name than just Republican. Um, <laughs> although maybe that makes me a fascist for thinking brothers of Italy because it sounds strong. Um, but so I thought, well, like, let's just do some quick research. So I read the Wikipedia on them. Political comment political commentators have variously described them as. Ready? neo-fascist, post-fascist, right-wing, far-right, nationalist, conservative, socially conservative, and right-wing populist. So they don't even know who they are. You know what I mean? Like, those right. are – like, we just talked about sort of figuring out what is that party, what's the future of conservatism, what bubble does it fit in right now, is it populist, yeah. is it fascist, is it nationalist, is it conservative, and they're just going to throw every single word at it. I mean, like, to end with this well, idea
0: – that's the problem with trying to label an entire political party anything right yeah um bill clinton and alexandria ocasio cortez are both democrats (laughs) donald trump and mitt romney are both republicans susan collins is a republican jim webb is a democrat um you know charles booker is a democrat andy beshear is a democrat rand paul is a republican mitch mcconnell is a republican right at various times, the sort of ideological wins within a party will shift towards one or more of those people at any given yep. time. Um, and so you can certainly make an argument that a person is a conservative, a libertarian, yep. a, a liberal, a progressive, a fascist, a communist, or whatever. Um, but in the era of, the, like, <laughs> it, it's difficult to say, like, unless you're like, uh, we're the communist party USA. Okay. They're, they're pretty committed to being communist kind of thing. It's difficult to say exactly what a a party believes, right? It's a little bit easier in Europe because the parties are there. There are far more parties. Um, you know, like the, the coalition that is governing Italy is multiple political parties. It's not just the, the brothers of Italy. They have by far the largest, uh, chunk of the governing coalition but they they need other political parties to govern most of which are sort of moderate right of center parties and so that sort of i think shifts the the tone of the, the the incoming government so to speak um but you know it We'll see. Again, like I said, I could I could be wrong about this woman in five years from now. She could be invading uh, Ethiopia and you no know, kind of stuff, right? But I think for the most part, she is one of these people of the right who sees sort of cultural decay as a larger problem than economic around. And so, um, I think, I think we'll see again, she could be Mussolini 2.0, but I don't know that it's painfully obvious. And the way that it's being treated is that it's painfully obvious. Yeah.
1: And I also think too, you know, to your point about, uh, you know, it's not, you can't always identify the party by either the president or whoever it may be. And I also think for Italy, right? Like Italy has a new freaking government every six months, right? Like it's the- – I can't remember who I saw say <laughs> this,
0: but it was someone like let's see if she can make it two years and then we can really have a conversation about, you know, yeah. like legacy and stuff like that.
1: And so it's always hard to compare – and like – well, this is the thing about the United States too. I was about to say it's always sort of hard to compare it to the United States because the United States is this sort of center-right uh, – and that it's it tends to be very slow in how things change and even when they do change they're they're very slow in how they do i mean we begrudgingly see things happening but the there's a, there's a very real chance that Donald Trump who is you know not the only person on the right who embraces this populist movement in America certainly but there's a very real chance that f- you know, uh, four years after he was our president, he's A, no longer the president, and B, wouldn't even be the party's nominee, right? Like, these movements happen very quickly, and if that means the party embraces somebody like Ron DeSantis, who maybe is in that same vein in some ways, but maybe closer to the middle, and then eight years later embraces a Mitt Romney and then is back to a Rand Paul type, and then... All of a sudden there's another Trump or that, you know, like it, I do think there is It it's sometimes it's it's hard to know. But I, I do think this kind of like populist, fascist, nationalist, like whatever you want to call it, yeah. is having this kind of interesting moment. And and again, I think because the left and its allies have really broken themselves over the last decade, they have this like, no, everybody I don't like is fascist.
0: Have have you read Matthew Continetti's book The Right? I have not. No. Okay, so it's it's really good, and I recommend it to people who have made it this far on the podcast for sure. <laughs> um, but Continetti basically talks about um, the the history of the right, uh, basically from the early 1900s forward in the United States, and he does this really smart thing where he kind of connects a lot of the anti-establishment candidates. Uh, over the years on the basis of being anti-establishment and less on the particulars of their ideology, right? So how do you explain uh, Ron Paul being the insurgent anti-establishment candidate in a presidential primary and then very quickly thereafter Donald Trump being the insurgent anti-establishment candidate, right? If you try to look from an ideological standpoint, they share very little, you know? Uh, Ron Paul is probably the closest thing To a true libertarian that we have had In elected office Uh, Donald Trump's obviously a right wing populist And so if you try to say Like where's the ideological consistency There you won't find much But both of them tapped into anti-establishment Sentiments that were like The status quo is unacceptable And Congressman Paul had His solutions for that uh, Had his solutions for that And so I think that lot of what goes on right more so than not that it, it rarely has to do with policy specifics and more to do with somebody who can articulate the problems yeah. and uh you know offer an outside of the status quo set of solutions that was pat Buchanan's plan that's what joe mccarthy did with uh uh all, all of the sort of anti-communist stuff that he was doing the, mccarthy's existence was basically to say that the status quo was not rooting out communism quick enough here's how i'm going to do it yeah. right and carthy was a remarkably imperfect messenger for that and yeah. there's been a lot written about how even on the things that he was correct about you know that like how he he had actually correctly um uh, observed certain things he would embellish certain things on purpose yeah. and You know all this kind of stuff, and it was all because it was to to demonstrate that the status quo wasn't taking care of this quick enough. And so I think that a lot of what you see on the right is this constant battle between sort of establishment and anti-establishment, and then that anti-establishment mentality takes different forms depending on the circumstances, right? Like Ron Paul's libertarianism was very appealing to a lot of folks at times when economic hardship was the issue of the day, right when populism tends to be a little bit more when it's sort of cultural issues that are the issue of the day. And a lot of those things in to various degrees and in various forms will make their way into mainstream establishment uh, conservatism or republicanism, but um, almost always sort of after they've been sanitized, after they've been worked through and never to to the level of those candidates um, it's actually pretty rare that a candidate like Donald Trump emerges and actually wins uh, outright something like the presidency. Yeah. And so, um, it uh, I think I think a lot of this comes down to dissatisfaction with the status quo yeah. and whoever can present a set of solutions for the moment that makes the most sense to people and. I think it's got a lot less to do with socialism or fascism or libertarianism or conservatism and and who resonates. Right. Why were there so many voters that were Bernie Sanders voters in the primary who crossed over and voted for Donald Trump? Right. Yeah. It's dissatisfaction with Hillary Clinton, who is like the personification of the status quo, Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. The swamp. Yeah.
1: Um. So, yeah, that's the thoughts on things going on in Italy. Uh, again, I would encourage people to to at least check out that video. Uh, It's, it's certainly interesting. Um, You know, don't just take the headlines at at face value. I would encourage people to to check that out. Um, But yeah, I I do think it will be interesting to see. And again, it's all, it's, it's, it's Italy. So it's, it's tough for us Americans to always know exactly where things are at or how they necessarily operate or what it means or, uh, yeah. view everything very much through a sort of American lens at times. So, um, be interesting to, to watch that and see if that does become a trend where there is more Victor Orban's and, uh, Georgia Maloney's and, uh, who that, that may next be any final thoughts as we head into the weekend, Josh.
0: I don't think so. Um, the one thing I will say is that interestingly, you know, the UK just elected a new prime minister as well. Yeah. Uh, and she is as milk toast standard conservative party member as they come right and so and uh, i do think some of this is response to very localized issues and the issues in italy uh are very pronounced and very specific um and so to your point i don't know that they're necessarily like lessons to be learned had had italy gone or excuse me had had uh, britain gone sort of populist right and it's prime minister yeah. election. And then this happened. Then it's, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. Then it would be like, okay, maybe there's something going on that we need to pay attention to. But, um, they went, they went pretty milk toast on that front. Yep.
1: yeah. Um, RIP, the queen. I don't think we've had a podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was many moons ago now, but, um, that's it. That's all I've got. um, Josh, you only just cause you, you mentioned this and made me think of it, um, uh, about being like impressionable in college. I listened to serial while I was in college. Yeah. Uh, went back and listened to it. So 2014 went back and listened to it this past week and then watched the documentary. Boy, did I have a different take on this man's guilt or innocence.
0: Oh, I really? i not
1: tell you which way or the other. When I first... I just, I'll leave it up to the listeners to listen but I think most people may know where we fall on this one <laughs> <laughs> we don't have much sympathy for murderers and or accused murderers um, but yeah uh, again interesting to go back and re-listen I had a very different perspective now as a person who's been in media for many years and I saw right through Sarah Koenig saw right through yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, if people have it's an interesting story there city journal who we love over at manhattan institute has written a bunch about this too about um Marilyn mosby is that correct yeah and who, i'm gonna mess this up but i want to say she's the da but i know each state has a different actual description or what state's attorney, yeah i can't remember if she's a state's attorney or whatever yeah, But I yeah i think that's what it is state's attorney um uh but city journal has written some really great stuff about that and and Uh, other parts of that story but that would be my kind of to do for listeners is go back and re-listen to serial that's all i got we will see everybody on the next episode of the pegasus podcast
0: pegasus podcast is brought to you by bluegrass media lab and pegasus institute if you like what you heard share it with a friend leave us a review and subscribe on apple podcast
1: spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite shows to learn more about our work on improving the lives of all kentuckians visit PegasusKentucky.org.